Hello and welcome to Connected, episode 157. It is brought to you this week by Eero, Ting, and Crimson Mesa. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Federico Vatici. Hi, Stephen. Hey, buddy. How are you? I'm good. Uh, yeah. It's it's just the two of us. Just the two of us. I know. This week. I know. There's a, there's a sense of uh, being grown-ups when Mike is not around. Mm-hmm. I feel like uh, I feel like I'm having a, an adult conversation instead of you know just basically I don't know what what is that we do with Mike but Mike is not <laughs> with us we don't know he's, where, he's not we don't know where he will be coming back if he will be coming back but that Stephen uh, doesn't doesn't have to stop you from doing the follow up no the follow up train cannot come off the tracks. <laughs> nope. It must, it's barreling down on us. And it's really, really getting dark. So you guys spoke last week about the iPad that you bent. I found that whole conversation hysterical because it, you, it was. you don't know uh, what <laughs> so, happened. So, uh, so I, I, I want to follow up on the investigation. Have you investigated what happened? So um, I, I tried to investigate what happened and I couldn't come up with any reasonable idea for exactly how the iPad bent. But I saw someone on Twitter today with a actually pretty good idea that maybe um, this person asked me, did you leave the iPad in the sun? And is it possible that the iPad got hot and the aluminum bent because of a, of a just a light pressure, uh, not even a strong force? Now, it is possible that I left the iPad in the sun, but... Uh, you know, I don't think the mm-hmm. aluminum would bend um, if I don't see at least the error message uh, with the you know on iOS that tells you that the your device is overheating. I'm not sure that that temperature, you know, if I don't yeah. see the message, can the aluminum really bend? So yeah, so I'm doing some googling about uh, the softening and, and melting points of aluminum. The softening point seems to be like as low as a hundred, hundred degrees Celsius. Which oh, is, I'm definitely not in a beach at a beach with that. No, <laughs> nope. no. You, you'd be dead yes. <laughs> or you'd want to be dead. So I don't think it's that, but, uh, no, iPads are not made out of butter. They don't, they don't slowly <laughs> <laughs> become softer as they warm up. But, uh, yeah, so I, I don't have any real thoughts. I, I, I'm sure it was in a bag and just got squished. It happens. Uh, but you went to the Genius Bar, and I know they all know you there. I know that they roll out the red carpet and they hand you an espresso. They really don't. Uh, I wish they did, but they really, unfortunately, they don't. Um, so, yeah, I went to the Genius Bar, and um, I take out my iPad. And uh, actually, first I go to the guy and I say, I have a problem with my iPad Pro. I made a reservation. He's like, yeah, sure. What, what is the problem? So, um, basically, I just pulled the iPad from my bag, and I... Uh, Showed to the guy, I was like, this is the problem. And he was like, ha, huh, how did that happen? <laughs> I was like, um, well, I have no idea, actually. Um, so uh, Apple covered that under, uh, thankfully, I had Apple Care Plus for my iPad. Yes. So instead of, and this is, I should say, this is the first time in eight, nine years that I'm buying Apple mobile devices that I ever did Apple Care. And I decided to, to do AppleCare Plus because it felt like for a thousand plus euro device, it felt yeah. like a good choice. So yeah. inst- I don't think I've ever done it on an iPad. Yeah, but I do on the phone. I do the AppleCare Plus on the phone because, as we've talked about at length, I carry my phone without a case, 
Mm. And sometimes it comes in mm. handy to have Apple Care Plus. But. Um, yeah. And so instead of paying, uh, the guy did the calculation, instead of paying 550 euros, I only had to pay 49, um, which was pretty which nice. Which is less. Which is it, less, the, much less. the math is hard, it is less, and, much less money. And last week I was telling Mike about these Apple Care costs. And then I was left waiting uh, for a, yeah, the guy told me you gotta wait for five to six days. I was like, okay, yeah. sure, I can use my bent iPad. You know, I can go to the beach with a bent iPad. It's fine. But then the following day, I get an email from Apple: your iPad is ready for pickup at the Apple Store. Mm. So I was, I yeah, was really. I bet it was. I was they saw that email address. Yeah. So we better take care of this guy. Yeah. I, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I don't know. Uh, I don't think that's the case. Probably just luck. You know, who's buying iPad Pro, iPad Pros in August in Rome? Come on, everybody's at the beach. Just, just you. Just me just buying, you. buying an iPad, getting an iPad Pro. So yeah, the following day I go to the Apple Store. Sure enough, there's a cardboard cardboard box uh, with an iPad Pro inside, and um, I we we made we make the exchange. And the first thing I notice is that I'm trying to turn on the iPad, the new iPad Pro, and it's stuck at the Apple logo. I was like, oh man, this mm. is a bad sign. Uh, yeah. So I had to do a force uh, reset, you know, like a forced reboot. And then it worked well. I wonder why it was stuck on the, on the Apple logo. Maybe, you know, mm. some, some installation gone wrong. And actually, I wanted to ask you, do you know if these iPads that Apple gives you, you know, these replacement units, are they actually yes. new devices or are they like refurbished devices? That's a good question. I mean, my experience at Apple Retail so long ago, it's basically irrelevant. But my understanding is that they are, are quote, like new. So they have new batteries and new enclosures. But the, the you know, the logic board may have, or the screen, you know, may have come out of, of something they refurbished. So uh, I don't think it's new, but I think it, it is, quote, like new, where, you, you know, effectively there's no difference. Mm-hmm. Okay, but again, that that could be uh, if if you're out there and you're listening and you're yelling at me for getting that wrong, send uh, send an email and we'll correct it uh, next week. Send an email to Steven, Yes. Um, so the the new one comes with some variant of iOS 10. I'm sure you put ele- did you put 11 on it right out of the box? Right out of the box. I went back home because thankfully I was still in Rome. I was in Rome for a couple of days last week. Um, so I, I went home and I downloaded iOS 11. Um, and yeah, it, it's fine. I had to do a restore from backup, which I usually do not perform because it tends to be so slow. But, you know, I have a fiber connection, not as good as Mike's connection, but it's still manageable. So I did a restore. I had to put in a bunch of passwords again. But overall, I was, you know, back up and running in, I would say, three to four hours. Uh, the iPad was normal again. Yeah, yeah. Good. I'm, I'm glad it uh, I'm glad it worked out so quickly. You know, th- that delay is kind of annoying, but they, they just can't keep everything in stock, right? So they yeah, have to order right. you in a service part. But... um. Well, good. I'm glad you're sorted. I'm glad that uh, this one is is not bent, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, don't yeah. don't bend this one. Yeah, I'm advice. being I'm being super super careful <laughs> with what I do with this iPad. Like yeah. now, now it's in your head, right? I'm this is possible. So you're just gonna. I'm constantly looking at the profile of the device, and like, is it is it slightly bent now? <laughs> Am I bending the iPad? <laughs> I did that with my six plus because people remember that some of those phones, I wouldn't say they're prone to bending, but you could bend them. And yeah, sometimes I'd get in my head, like I'd pick it up and be like, oh no, I've bent it. And then I'd put it on like a, a glass top table and like see if it wiggled any, you know, I'm sure <laughs> anyone watching me thought I would have just lost my mind. But once it's like in your head, right. That it's like, oh, this feels bent. Then you have to like prove to yourself that it's not. 
it's really upsetting yeah yeah so yeah now it's in my head and i'm looking at it all the time but it seems to be fine so um i'm i was really happy it's, that the it's genus impressive bar. really yeah it's impressive really that yeah. you've done it yeah you don't know your own strength federico that's what it is uh i don't know man i don't know so we had a bunch of people mm-hmm. send us an email about this TechCrunch article. If this is our legacy, I'm I'm happy with it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not what I. You know, you don't always get to decide what your legacy is going to be, <laughs> right? Sometimes your legacy chooses you, and ours is wall-to-wall comprehensive. Blah blah car coverage. So, what is the story? Do you want to you want to break this down? So you know how in Google Maps, um, on the in the iPhone app, you can integrate with a bunch of, um, what are they called, ride-sharing services, stuff like Uber and MyTaxi, my you know, that stuff. Yeah, Lyft. Lyft, yeah. yeah. When you when you search for, for an address, uh, you get the usual walking and car, you know, transit options. But then you also get these integrations with, with these services. And if you don't want to use your own transportation methods, you can you can hook up your account and get a fare estimation in the app. And then, you, you know, you can request an Uber or a Lyft directly from Google Maps. Well, now it seems that there's a blah blah car integration in google maps so if you if you want to ride long distance and of course you don't want to spend like a thousand euros uh with uber uh you can see if there's (laughs) you can see if there's anybody uh who's traveling there with blah blah car which is the awesome service also possibly sketchy uh i don't want anybody to get killed by stranger in a car but you know it seems to be quite popular in europe and especially in france and italy um so if you want to ride with someone who's going to the same place where you're supposed to be going, now you can um, you can see the you know the the estimated cost and uh, the timeline you know the schedule of someone else sharing a ride with BlaBlaCar directly in Google Maps. Which I mean, if you tr- if you trust and use BlaBlaCar, I should say a couple of my friends swear by this service. They are super in love with it. So if you <laughs> if you're into the idea of doing a, a blah blah car ride and if you can survive it uh, maybe you should test the google maps integration because it seems pretty cool <laughs> it is nice i have used the the lift integration um or uh, i've at least played with it you know you kind of poke at it in the in ios maps and like i'm looking at this place so in a car take me here it's nice that you don't have to go out to another app it's one of those those integrations that makes a lot of sense yeah uh so yeah making moves man mm-hmm. making moves. yeah these integrations in in um mapping applications like in Apple Maps and in Google Maps are actually quite nice. Um, Maps on iOS, the the Apple mm, one, has also extensions for developers. So a couple of times in the past I use, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the service that is called TripAdvisor. Uh, it's like a... Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, so in, in Italy, and I guess in Europe, it's super popular because we don't really have Yelp. Um, so we use TripAdvisor all the time. And one sort of sister company to TripAdvisor. It's called The Fork and it lets you book. It's like open table, but for Italians basically and Europeans, I think. Um, and The Fork has an Apple Maps integration. So when, I, when I'm looking up, uh, usually restaurants in popular cities like in Rome or in very tu- touristy type places and they have uh, The Fork integrations. So I can go into Apple Maps and make a reservation from there and it takes care, you know, you get this custom UI inside of Maps. And it's very similar to the to the integration system that Google Maps has. But Apple has an actually like a developer API. So anybody in theory can work with Apple to make these extensions, which is kind of neat. 
so many times like you have you have an address or something and you gotta you gotta put it on your clipboard and then paste it into one of these other apps or try to remember it or like it's just way cleaner to have it all in one. So I am I'm a big fan as well. All right. Jamie wrote in about subscription fatigue. Mm. Um so I'm gonna read a little bit of Jamie's email and I really wanna know what you okay. what you think about this. Okay. So this is, is riffing on something that Mike said, I think a couple weeks ago, that if you only use an application once or twice a year, you may not necessarily want to pay for it for a whole year of use via subscription. So if you if I have this app, I use it, you know, uh, once in the winter and once in the summer, I, I don't want to pay for it the the other ten months out of the year, for instance. So Jamie suggests a approach for these companies that would be like a smart subscription set system, is what they call it. So that you would still pay a monthly fee, but only you only get charged if you use the app during that period. So if I use this app in January, I pay January's you know subscription amount. But if I do not use it in February, March, or April, I don't get billed for those months. I open it again in May and use it, I get billed for May. Um, and you know, th- I think Jamie's thought is that you could you could gain like casual users, like part of the deal with subscriptions. We've talked about it. If you have an app that goes subscription and you kind of only use it every once in a while, you may drop it, and that this would help keep those people along uh, without you know, getting uh, involved for the full yearly fee. And I was curious what you think about this. I mean, I think it, in these arguments make sense. You know, if you don't want to... Uh, we talked about this, I think, in terms of the subscriptions are going to uh, target different types of customers and different types of audiences. But I think the problem is how do you calculate, how do you create a, a subscription service that can make this kind of calculations for everybody? So if you apply that to millions of people on the App Store, how do you create a, a system that can basically build a subscription dynamically and differently for everybody based on their usage? Because that idea seems super smart, you know, like... I'm paying a sub, quote-unquote subscription, but only for the months that I'm actually using the app. But how can you... You know, it seems to add like a whole bunch of other complications. Right, to, to like, like what does using it mean? Exactly, like if exactly. I, if I tap it once when I'm like moving folders around, yep. because in iOS 11 that's super confusing, uh, oh no, I opened it, I'm going to get charged three ninety nine. Like yep. I agree with you that... that it's fuzzy, right? You need some sort of clear definition. Yeah, and so I, I, I don't know because on one hand, you got a pretty simple model. Every month or every year, you pay X and that's it. Mm-hmm. Instead, we would say, oh, well, it depends on how much you use the app. So what does use constitute exactly? And then you got you to gotta make an API for this because you got to tell developers, well, uh, either the system decides what using means uh, so if I want to export my data from the app because I'm done with it, because I don't, wa- don't want to use it anymore, I want to take all my documents out of the app. Does that mean I'm using the app? So does the app need to have like a, like a grace period model built in? Uh, it seems like it makes sense in practice. Uh, like it makes sense in theory, but in practice, I would just say just go look for something else because uh, the subscription is clearly meant for a different type of user. And I think the greatest thing that subscriptions are doing right now is they're sort of splitting up the app store into two uh, type of professional applications. The ones that follow the old model of pay once and pay for upgrades or buy the new version and the new sort of uh, trend of doing subscriptions. 
and we can choose, right? It's not like everybody is switching to subscriptions. If you, you know, even using Ulysses as a, as a, as a recent example, the folks at uh, IA Writer or Scrivener, for example, which are pretty similar apps, they are not switching to subscriptions. So the great thing right now is that we have choice. And so because we have choice, instead of saying, you know, we should create this system that accounts for uh, how much a, a user actually uses the app and then calculates this, the subscription accordingly. Instead, I think it's just better maybe to pick a different tool and use it, you know? Yeah. I, so far, uh, the couple apps that I have had moved to subscription are apps that I really used. And so they... they so far, I've not been in the situation where an app that I only use a couple of times a year has done this. Um, but I'm sure it's coming at some point. But, you know, like when day one went to their premium model, I used day one multiple times a week. And I was happy to pay for it. And I did so like on day one. For me, I don't use um, Ulysses. And so, you know, that one kind of just went by me because I didn't use it before. Uh, I do like that if I want to use it now, there's more options with their trial stuff they've built in. But, you know, if I have the need for it, then I'll visit it in the future. But I think there are a lot of people who are coming up against apps that, you know, that fit into what Jamie's talking about. I think it's an interesting approach, but I think I agree with you that it's not quite the right answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's interesting to think about. Yeah. Um, because there are sort of all these – anytime there's a change in the app store, there's always pros and cons, right? It's, it's, it's such a complex system with so many apps and so many users that there is no one size fits all in anything. And anytime something changes or is updated or works differently, uh, you always have to approach it uh, in, in a new light, both as a developer, but as a user as well. Uh, I, I have to wonder if, you know, this problem with subscriptions is mostly a result of the fact that some of the established developers in the industry right now are folks that used to be around before. Like they're all relatively old companies, they that 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 have a vested interest in keeping the old model around, and so I wonder if the new generations of developers, like the kid that is now sixteen or seventeen and wants wants to, it's her dream to start a company in three years, is she gonna do, uh, you know, a paid upfront app? Or are the new generations more inclined to consider these new these new models, whether they are subscriptions or in-app purchases or you know new stuff? Because the popular apps that we use, you know, the OmniFocus and Ulysses and uh, Scrivener, these are all folks that have been around for a long time, and maybe some of them. And, and this is not an accusation, but it's just a natural evolution of things. They don't have the mindset to try new stuff because they are structured in a specific way as a company or because they just don't understand the change. You know, change is scary for everybody. But some people are more inclined to to changing and to experimenting. And usually those people are young people. So I wonder if the app store five, five years from now, you know, 10 years from now, where someone who's, you know, a kid in college today will create a development studio in the future. Will they stick with the old model or will they change to the new ones? That is fascinating for me to think about. Yeah, I think kind of along the same lines, I wonder if this would have been different had subscriptions been introduced five years ago. Mm-hmm, exactly. When yeah. paid up front was still very much the business model. And we are also used now to free within that purchase or free with ads that introducing this new paid 
mechanism feels um, a little late. And obviously there's no way to know, but I, I think about that a lot of like, what would have this been like had it been available earlier in the store? And it may have been a more natural stepping stone over to this if we were all still used to paying for apps up front and said that, oh, hey, it's great. Now you can pay less just on a monthly basis or a yearly basis or whatever. And, you know, it's not a big deal. But because we were so used to, to free apps now that there's some backlash of, of users who don't who have been used to not paying for apps and now you know they're they're faced with paying something on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just interesting to think yeah. about. Yeah. So uh, we're gonna take a quick break and tell you about our first sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Eero. Never think about your Wi-Fi again. Eero has created the dream Wi-Fi setup: fast, reliable connection throughout your house and even the backyard. And now's the best time to get on board with Eero as they've just released their super slick second generation device. This thing introduces a new tri-band second generation model along with Eero Beacon, allowing you to build a Wi-Fi system that's perfectly tailored to your home. The new second generation Eero includes a third 5 gigahertz radio, making it twice as fast as before. This lets you do more than ever. Whatever your Wi-Fi needs, Eero has the power to blanket your entire home in fast, reliable, warm, cuddly Wi-Fi. It sits flat on any surface. Just plug it into the wall and you're ready to connect your Eero via Ethernet or wirelessly. The new Eero also includes a new thread radio, which lets you connect low-powered devices like smart door locks and doorbells and all this other stuff right to your Eero network. And the Eero beacon is all new. Just plug it into a wall and expand coverage into any room. You can add as many Eero beacons as you want so long as you have one Eero device. And it even includes a built-in LED nightlight with ambient light sensor. It's really great. The Aero app lets you manage all of this stuff from the palm of your hand. It's easy to set up your network. You can easily create and share guest networks, set rules, all of this sort of stuff right from the super well-designed iOS app. And if you do get stuck, their customer support, it's amazing. You call and get hold of a Wi-Fi expert in just 30 seconds. Before Eero, I had just a single access point in my house and I had dead spots. I had remote bedrooms that there was no Wi-Fi. Forget about doing something in the driveway or in the yard. And Eero has my entire house covered because I can put multiple base stations out and they all work together. The new Eero system starts at just $399 for one second-generation Eero with two beacons. That's everything you need to get started. Listeners of this show can get free overnight shipping to the U.S. or Canada when you head to Eero.com and use the promo code CONNECTED. That's Eero.com with the promo code CONNECTED for free overnight shipping. Thank you to Eero for their support of this show and FM. So we were falsely accused, Federico, mm, by, as by, a by show, uh, somebody on Twitter, I don't remember, uh, blaming us for killing Crash Plan. Didn't we? And I was like, no, okay. we haven't talked about Crash Plan. Okay. I, I even looked through the notes. I was like, did we mention it recently? And then, you know, the prompt curse killed it. No, this is not our fault. Okay. Uh, but the news is Crash Plan, which is a, a backup service for your, your Mac or PC, they have exited exited the consumer space so it used to be you go to these this crash plan you pay whatever it was five bucks a month and you can back up your mac and they are moving out of that business and just doing um small business basically now we should say backblaze has been a sponsor of connected and a bunch of relay fm shows uh but i used backblaze before then um i've used backblaze for a long time but just to get that 
off the table. Uh, they are a sponsor. So I don't necessarily talk about the crash plan thing all that much. I mean, it's it's clearly that just it's not working for them. Uh, you can migrate from a personal account to a small business account. There's some incentives if you do that. Uh, they recommend people use Carbonite. I think all of us would say Backblaze is a better choice. But it got me thinking again about Time Machine and iCloud. So Time Machine Backup is great, but the problem is that your hard drive, like for instance, on my iMac here on my desk, my Time Machine drive is under the desk. And so if my studio burns to the ground, um, A, a lot of old Macs would be killed, but two, all, my data, you know, just on my iMac and the Time Machine drive would go away. And what Backblaze does or Crash Plan or these other services is they get your data offsite. And I could talk about back, backups all day. Um, it's a very uh, exciting topic, mostly to yeah, Federico. I, I had no idea. <laughs> really, can you? Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> yeah, huh, weird. Uh, but, you know, it got me thinking, like, what would it take for iCloud to offer Time Machine backup to the cloud? So I looked up some pricing because the iCloud pricing seems to change every nine months or so. Right now, if you're in the U.S., you can buy two terabytes of iCloud data for basically 10 bucks a month. And all around the world, two terabytes is the max. So, you know, that is more a month than something like Backblaze, which is $5 a month for unlimited uh, backup. But it's it's a reasonable amount for that data. And for most people, you know, if, if I had this two terabyte plan, if I could go and tell the iCloud settings, hey, uh, I want to use a terabyte for time machine backup, just carve out a terabyte for time machine backup and let the other terabyte be used for iCloud photo library and whatever else I have in iCloud. And that seems not unreasonable to me at this point that they could do something like this. I think it'd be nice. Yeah. And um, especially, you know, when you compare iOS devices and Macs, um, even if I don't personally use uh, iCloud backup and restore every time, it's just so easy when you need it. And it surprises me that, totally. that the Mac doesn't have a feature like this. And quite possibly, I mean, the fact that Macs can, you know, they, they tend to ship with more uh, built-in storage than iOS devices, probably that was a problem in the past. But, you know, uh, Apple seems to be open to the idea of extending the storage of iCloud Drive. And uh, especially, you know, now that they're also going to do family sharing in iOS 11, you can share your space with other members in your family. I'm surprised that the Mac still doesn't have any deeper iCloud integration when it comes to, you know, setup and, and backup. It, it is surprising. So I've been setting up my High Sierra drive like over and over. Uh, like you, I'm in the depths of a review. And if you sign into iCloud on a blank Mac, it pulls down a bunch of settings. Uh, you know, you have all your contacts and calendars like you normally do, but it pulls down like account settings. So it knew about all three of my email addresses and it knows about my, you know, uh, these other logins and stuff. But it's not nearly as comprehensive as a Time Machine Restore would be, of course, or an iCloud Restore on iOS. And it's, we're at the point where I think, I think most nerds know about time machine. It's been around since 10.5. It's been a really long time, but it still requires you go buy an external hard drive and plug it in. Right. Or if, and most people have notebooks. So you got to remember like, Oh, it's on my desk. When I charge my laptop, I need to plug in the drive and oh, I need to buy a dongle. And like, I think a lot of people can go, you know, longer than they think they do between backups. And, and then you're, you know, at risk for data loss. And, Something like, like Crash Plan or Backblaze takes care of that. Like 
a lot of things would have to go wrong for me to go get my data off Backblaze. Like it's not my first backup, but it is my safety net, right? If if my yet if my office disappears, then I can go get my data from Backblaze. And I think people would be more willing to do something like this uh, if it's built in, you know, with, with in iCloud system settings because it's just built in. They trust it. They don't have to go find something else. They they already know and trust Apple and the iCloud brand. And uh, it just seems like an opportunity for Apple to, to, to maybe make a move here at some point. And uh, Dan Morin, I wrote this thing over at Macworld. This is one of those deals where I was preparing for the show, and then somebody we know wrote basically exactly what I was going to say. So <laughs> go uh, read Dan's mm-hmm. article. It's, it's very much in line with this. But I think it would be nice to have another option uh, for Mac users. Because like you said, the iCloud backup is so good on iOS – and Time Machine's really good, but again, you got to go, you got to go buy a hard drive, and not everyone's going to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, crash plan. It's time for Backblaze. It's uh, it's the way to go. This week, Apple introduced app development in Swift. This is a new community college curriculum uh, built around the Swift programming language. Um, so Tim Cook has been doing this like Great American Tour. He's seen. He's sp- spoken at some factories. Uh, he was in Austin, Texas, where uh, Apple had, Apple actually has a really big corporate presence in Austin. Uh, and he was speaking at the Austin Community College District, which is uh, apparently a 74,000 student community college or group of community colleges. And, and more or less, this is a, uh, a course on Swift. Uh, This is a quote from Tim Cook. We've seen firsthand how Apple's app ecosystem has transformed the global economy, creating new industries and supporting millions of jobs. We believe passionately that the same opportunity should be extended to everyone. And community colleges have a powerful reach into communities where education becomes the great equalizer. That feels good. Yeah. It feels feels nice. Yeah. They've been talking about this, uh, you know, extending Swift uh, with this type of course. So I think it's a... You know, I wonder if we'll ever see this kind of initiative from Apple outside of the U.S. But still, um, I mean, in Italy, they do have the uh, sort of the, uh, what, what's it called? Not the Apple University, like the app accelerator. Like the, it's like, yeah, a, you get like a college degree or something and to become an app developer. Like it's in Naples and there's a, it's structured like, like a university degree, I think. So mm-hmm. that's great. There's one in India too, I think now. Yeah, there's one in um, there's one in India, I think. But it will be, it would be great to have this kind of curriculum in the community colleges as well. Um, so it's great that, that they've started doing this in the US. I think it's it definitely you know it's one of the one of the one of the things that sort of distinguishes Tim Cook's Apple from what the company was before especially now that they have their own programming language. And you can see a certain amount of pride every time Apple talks about this stuff, whether it's like Swift Playgrounds and what they're doing with, you know, extending Playgrounds to, for example, now kids can, you know, run custom code on like Bluetooth toys and Mm -hmm. small drones even. So that's awesome. And you can see how they, as a company, they are proud to ship this kind of software and to... create these opportunities for kids and students. So um, I'm really happy to see that they're continuing to do this stuff. Yeah. And so this is, um, I mean, it's on the iBook store, uh, which we can get to, but this is available 
They say it's going to be offered at more than 30 community colleges across the U.S. in the 2017-2018 school year. But you would imagine that this would grow. And this is, you know, separate from things like uh, Swift Playgrounds on the iPad. But they are slowly sort of building all of this stuff together. And I think it is interesting that they are using their programming language as like a means for civil good, if you can say that. There's a quote in this press release from the Austin mayor um, talking about like lifting people out of poverty and into good jobs. It, I think you're right that, that Apple leverages Swift for much more than, air quotes, just a programming language. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, it's they're sort of using this as... Uh, I think Swift in, in this regard is sort of the continuation of, you know, Apple always said that education is really important for the company. And I think Swift is now a representation of that. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about how they're rolling it out. Like I said, this uh, seems like it's in iBooks. And this this comes, I mean, they're unrelated stories, except I'm going to try to make them related. Uh, this comes after uh, last week uh, Apple announced that in September, uh, iTunes U, uh, iTunes U collections will be moving into Apple Podcasts, and that the courses will only be available through the iTunes U app mm-hmm. on iOS. Yeah. So, iTunes U, I feel like it's always been one of those products that doesn't really have a home. Like it kind of got like glued into iTunes and then they've had an iOS app, which do you remember? I had like a, a real like flashback uh, reading through this. Do you remember the, the, the UI for iTunes U at first? It was yeah. the same bookcase yeah. as newsroom, but like dark wood instead of light wood. It was, it was like, way to go guys. <laughs> good, good work. Uh, uh, do you mean newsstand? Yes. Yeah. yeah newsstand. Yeah. New- yeah. Yeah, because I think yeah. Newsroom is their website for... That's, yeah, yeah. It's all very confusing. Yeah. yeah. Apple names, man. Uh, Newsstand. Uh, so, yeah, I do remember the old iTunes U uh, stuff. And there were, like, some elements that were, like, uh, borrowed from iBooks, even, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, th- those old apps, like iTunes U and the first podcast app, you know, with tape reel. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> those, were, those were the days of iOS UI some design. Good times. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if this stuff of iTunes U courses, uh, collections moving into podcasts and the courses staying in, the, in a separate app, do you think we'll eventually see like iTunes U renamed to Apple Education or something and as a sign of iTunes as a brand and as a product eventually going away? Yeah. Uh, I mean, the iTunes thing is the bigger conversation, but I do think that this is a step towards dismantling iTunes U and and at the same time building up Apple Podcasts, which is something they have a lot of equity in right now and they're really pushing on in iOS 11. You know, I, I do I do think that the name clearly comes from an age that we're not in anymore. And there's a lot of talk about iTunes needing to go away. And, and my money is that 2018 is the year we see iTunes on the Mac get, get broken up. But either way... Um, I think what's more interesting is like, is Apple still invested in this technology and invested in leveraging these tools for, because iTunes U, like we should back way up. For people who aren't familiar with iTunes U, it is a uh, a platform where teachers or, or even professors 
can basically load in content for their classrooms, right? And and students can download them. Uh, there's a there's a bunch of free stuff through iTunes U, so you can go like, you know, basically like look through the material for a class at Stanford or something, you know, or wherever. It's still being a standalone iOS app gives me hope that Apple is still invested in this. But yeah, I think I think iTunes on the Mac it, it doesn't bode well for that for that software. Yeah, yeah. I was reading through a bunch of tweets from Marco Arment a few days ago, and I think what he what what he was imagining made a lot of sense. That um, it's not like Apple will you know have a big ceremony and kill off iTunes very publicly. Instead, it'll probably you know uh, it'll be slowly dismantled, and a bunch of functionalities will be rolled out into other products and into separate apps. And eventually, they'll just put iTunes in a legacy like the utilities folder on the Mac, because nobody's really you know most people are streaming music or they are using Netflix and you know streaming stuff from from iTunes on their Apple TVs um nobody's really syncing their iPhones and iPads and iPods anymore with iTunes right and so there's still those folks that sync their music libraries but maybe that would be better served by a separate music app instead of having you know, every single feature featured into iTunes. So maybe eventually iTunes will go into a folder and if you really want to use it, you will be able to open it and to sync your devices manually. But I wouldn't be surprised if Apple's intention is not to have like a big announcement where killing off iTunes. Instead, you know, uh, you see a feature going into podcasts, another feature going to, into the TV app. And eventually, you know, maybe a couple of years from now, well, iTunes will be not forgotten, but just put there aside and you know it's be it's gonna be sad for those who i mean itunes did a lot of good things back in the day you know it sort of democratized the apple ecosystem in the sense of you have an apple device well now you have a single app to put anything you want in there so that was awesome but i think it's you know it's past its time and it's probably time to move on i just found all this interesting is they're making moves in content but not using the channels they may have done you know a year ago or two years ago all right, so we have more to talk about, but first I want to tell you about our second sponsor. That is Ting. Ting is a mobile phone service that wants you to help save money. Ting believes you should only pay for what you actually use. And with prices like $10 per gig of data, the average Ting customer pays just $23 a month per phone. If you're in the U.S. and you use a cell phone, you will love what the folks over at Ting can do for you. They don't believe in contracts, overage fees, or unlimited plans with a ton of catches and fine print. They are focused on offering the best prices they can for their customers. Any savings they can make, they pass on to you. 80% of devices made in the last two years, both GSM and CDMA, can come to Ting. And with their top-rated, no-hold customer support, you call and you get a real person, you can make sure that your phone is going to work. That even, and rumor is there's a new one coming, you can get the latest iPhone as soon as it launches, along with Apple Care. So if you're like Federico and need Apple Care Plus, they got you covered. If you're stuck in a contract like most of us, Ting will offer a 25% credit off your early termination fee as well. This is up to $75 per device that you bring. To get started, head over to connected.ting.com and use Ting's handy device checker to confirm that your phone can make the move. And if you're looking to upgrade to something new, Ting has plenty of options for you in their online store. Listeners of this show can save $25 on selected devices or keep it as Ting credit. Head over to connected.ting.com and see how much more you can save. We thank Ting for their support of this show 
and Relay FM. A, a story made the rounds this week about a hardware Kickstarter project, which usually something I don't know if we would cover on the show because hardware yeah. Kickstarter <laughs> uh, has a, a mixed, mixed uh, history. They are probably... Usually they are probably worse than video game Kickstarters. <laughs> they, you know, there have been so many examples of uh, accessories never shipping or being super delayed to the point where they come out and they are irrelevant because the technology has moved on. But this one comes from a company that a lot of people trust. They're called Astro HQ. They make AstroPad, which is an iPad application to turn the iPad screen into an external display for your Mac which a lot of people use, uh, you know, AstroPad comes in two versions. One is, you know, with a, we were talking about this actually just a few minutes ago. One, the, the basic version as a paid upfront traditional model. The other one, uh, I think it's called AstroPad Studio. It uses a subscription model for users that want more from the app. So that's an interesting way to go about it, to actually release two separate apps and to sort of aimed at, two separate audiences. But anyway, now the makers of AstroPad are making the Luna uh, accessory, which is a little, uh, should I say, a little dongle that you put into your MacBook and that basically via some magic, uh, I don't know even how this works, <laughs> but this little USB thingy, uh, it uses the GPU and the metal APIs on macOS to accelerate the, you know, the, the graphics on the iPad screen. That means that the iPad, if you have a Luna plugged into your MacBook, the iPad now becomes an external display for anything, you know, not just graphics applications, but for anything that you want to use, uh, you know, your Mac for. And it's got insane performance to the point of it feels like an actual external display, you not know, like something that is being streamed over Wi-Fi. I don't know how these folks do it, but the general idea is that because of the GPU acceleration and because of the metal API, by going uh, deeper into the system stack of graphics technologies on macOS, they can have better performance than similar apps that just rely on Wi-Fi. And that because of that, they have a lot of latency, they have a lot of lag. And anybody who's tried this says it's the best um, iPad as an external display solution I've ever tried. So seems pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, it it really seems like it. it I mean, from the video and and people's reactions, it seems like all the lag and stuff you get over a, a Wi-Fi setting is is gone. You don't have to use like a lightning cable or anything. It's just like this little dongle. In the video, they even show like someone on a couch, like sketching. I think an Illustrator with the Apple Pencil. Like you don't even see the Mac. Like it's just somewhere else, right? And and the iPad can take advantage of it. It really seems like something Apple would never do, but so many people would like them to do uh, because there are there are some like especially illustration apps that are only on on Mac OS. But I think Apple's response would be like, "Well, you should build them for the iPad, right?" Uh, yeah. That hasn't really happened with some of these, and it probably won't ever with something like Adobe Illustrator. But if you do need a Mac app but want to use the pencil and and the iPad Pro, this does answer that question. Like the Kickstarter is like super funded already. They're at as of this recording like almost three hundred forty five thousand dollars. Like clearly, there's demand for this. Yeah. Forty two hundred backers, which is way bigger demand than I thought there would be. But it, it does seem like something I'm I'm not sure it's for me because I don't I really don't have an app on my Mac that I want to use this way. But if you do, this seems like the best way to go about it. Yeah, um, 
I wouldn't be surprised if Apple is looking at this um, idea from a slightly different angle. And that is most of these companies, they their pitch is use your iPad as an external display. And that makes a lot of sense if you're that type of user that mostly works on the Mac, but also as an iPad. And so if when you're working on your Mac, you want to find some utility for the iPad. Instead, I would not be surprised if Apple is sort of seeing this as, if they were ever to do a similar feature, something along the lines of use your iPad to control your Mac. Something like transform the iPad Pro into a Wacom tablet. You know, with the Apple Pencil and with the you know with apps on your iPad, you can now integrate them with similar apps or with companion apps on macOS. And so, whereas these companies they try to, I don't want to say that they demote the iPad as a as a dumb display, but they let you use the iPad when you wouldn't probably use the iPad because you're at your desk. Instead, I think if Apple were to do something like this, they would do, you know, take your iPad Pro and now you can use your iPad to control your Mac. See, does it make any sense what I'm what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, uh, I think it does. And I think that opens it up to more users than just like people who want to use Illustrator. Yeah. yeah pencil, right? Like it, it makes it more flexible. Yeah, and again, this is all speculation. Uh, I, I don't, I don't actually know if Apple is planning something like this, but it would make more sense to me because the, I cannot see Apple coming out on stage and saying, "Well, if you hate your iPad, now you can use it as a dumb monitor for your computer." You know, <laughs> I mean, that, that, that kind of takes the wind out of the sails of iOS, right? Yeah, like, pretty much. Uh, forget all this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Just uh, everyone's macOS over the network. Yeah, just uh, just uh, buy a dongle because we we love to sell to sell you dongles they anyway. Do love dongles. So buy a dongle and use your iPad as a display. That's it. We're done. <laughs> Pack it up and go home, iPad. Uh, we fired all the iOS engineers. <laughs> yeah, that would be. They're not doing. But that. still, still. If you want to use your iPad as an external display, this is probably the way to go. Uh, and I mean, we all knew that Wi-Fi was a lossy solution to this problem. So, it, you know, whatever these guys did in terms of code, you know, um, the fact that they can hook up with the, you know, with the metal APIs on macOS and the GPU, that seems crazy to me. So um, mm-hmm. it sounds also crazy awesome. And if I were you know that type of user i would be all over this i would probably buy the 10 pack option you know like just just <laughs> buy a dongle for every occasion you know so yeah so there's that so best of luck to those guys it seems to be uh rocking and rolling mm-hmm. yeah so so federico it is the end of august and the iphone event depending on what you read could be just a couple of weeks away so today the wall street journal uh, is reporting that the iPhone event will take place on September 12th, which is a Tuesday, and that will take place in the Steve Jobs Theater, which, is, of course, is built at Apple Park. Uh, it has got a above-ground uh, lobby, I guess, an entryway, and then the theater is underground. We talked about it when they announced the name. It's a perfect name. Uh, and so, yeah, so uh, I was curious if you think, uh, I mean, this seems like the ideal thing to start holding events at the C-Jobs Theater with, right? Ha- having your iPhone, your biggest product, introduced there seems like a great way to introduce it. What do you think? Yeah, and I mean, especially after 10 years of the from the first iPhone, that would be perfect. I think that would be the right way to look back 
tastefully, but also look forward to what is coming to the iPhone's future. So I think that would be a perfect combination, honestly. Um, September 12th uh, as, a, as the date, uh, personally, I would be extremely relieved if uh, an event is in mid-September because that would mean that iOS 11 is not launching for at least a week after the event, which would put the iOS 11 release date at least on September 19th or September 20th. So that would be awesome for me because it means another 20 days of editing my review and preparing all the little surprises and extras that we're working on. Um, And also I wonder if maybe pushing the release of the new iPhones uh, by a week, you know, compared to the previous two years and sort of returning to the pattern of the 2014 releases. I wonder if it's a product of Apple is making a new phone and they needed slightly more time. Uh, so yeah. they had to push the, the announcement not in the first week of September, but in the second week with the iPhone launching in the third week of September. So that could be a possible reason. Uh, but if the rumors are correct, we are in for quite the show because Apple, in theory, is announcing three new iPhones, but also 4K content on iTunes with a 4K Apple TV launching, in theory, alongside 4K movies and TV shows on iTunes. And what else? Probably uh, another announcement slash demo of the HomePod. Um, am I missing something else? Uh, I mean, we'll, we'll see software, right? We'll, uh, we'll software, see a recap I of iOS 11 and High Sierra. And, of course, the new Apple Watch, which, according to the rumors, has an LTE version this time. Uh, so that would be quite a lot of stuff, you know? No iPads because they did the iPads in June, but still quite the show. It's a lot of stuff, man. Yeah. You know, I think back about, was it two years ago? They had the Apple TV 6S and 6S Plus, the big iPad Pro. Like it was a big two hour event. And this, this would be, um, this would be on up there with that. But I think it'd be great to have it at the theater. I think that, you know, we've talked about this before where they lump other products with the iPhone to, to share that stage with the iPhone, right? Cause that is their biggest, I mean, WC is big, but the world cares about the iPhone keynote, right? Uh, people don't really pay attention to WBC as much, but so, so if you have all that attention, why not do this other stuff and have, have these other products ready to go. And, and so many of them work together where, the Apple Watch and the phone go together, and maybe there's something unique there if you pair it with a new phone. Or the you know the Apple TV is sort of always floating, so they have to stick it with something mm-hmm. to to make it make sense. Like, well, um, th- this is something that I uh, that I wonder about in my in my review, and I don't remember if uh, I also discussed this on the show. But um, there's a section in my iOS review where I'm talking about the new image and video formats coming with iOS 11, uh, if and uh, HEVC. Um, mm-hmm. And I wonder if maybe, you know, because Apple is uh, supposedly going to roll out 4K content, and of course, traditional 4K content is huge in terms of file sizes. So I wonder if maybe Apple was wa- waiting for HEVC, you know, the high efficiency video codec, um, to roll out with iOS 11, with tvOS, and with macOS High Sierra. I wonder if for a 4K Apple TV to come out and for 4K content to be available on iTunes, if Apple wanted to have that piece of the ecosystem in place first, to have HEVC 
available as a as a format on iOS and all the other platforms and to request all the you know the all the movie and TV show companies to release their 4K stuff in that format, you know, with that codec, which results in uh, better compression, smaller file sizes, uh, you know, built-in support for HDR and, you know, uh, all these other modern features of movie formats on our devices. So I, I, do, I, I, I do wonder if, you know, everybody's been saying Apple, should, Apple must do 4K and Apple must do 4K. And Apple knows that they have to do 4K if they don't want to be left behind. But before they can do that, they wanted to have like the underlying technology done first with a better format. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, anything they could do to bring those file sizes down is good for them, but it's good for customers yep. too, right? If you hit play on the Apple TV... And you're downloading, you know, 4K HDR content. You know, right now, if you have a pretty decent internet connection, you hit play on a rental and it just starts, yep. right? There's there's enough data coming in that it can it has plenty of time to stream it all down locally before you even get close to needing it. And 4K is a lot more data, but with this new compression, they may be able to help uh, help balance that out. I think the more I think about it, the more I think you're right that the a 4K Apple TV is dependent on this. It's also dependent on them having 4K content ready in iTunes. Uh, like we spoke about a couple weeks ago, having some way to upgrade your 1080 content to 4K. There's a lot of moving parts there. And the iTunes movies and TV show, you know, that is probably the most important part of the iTunes ecosystem. Uh, I think it's probably more important than the music store at this point. And obviously it's front and center on the Apple TV. So you have to have that, right? You You can't launch a 4K Apple TV and not have 4K, at least some 4K stuff in the iTunes store. That would just be, that'd be silly. So there's a lot of moving parts there, but I think the more I think about it, the more I think you're right, that this is sort of all one lump sum. And again, it's a big stage, so why not do it here if it's already? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so we'll see. Uh, How how many days left? Uh, Two weeks at this point. Yeah, just about. And and surely if, if... this 4K Apple TV is real. We're going to see demos. We're going to see Netflix or Hulu or somebody, uh, Amazon Prime Video, uh, on stage, you know, saying, hey, we're ready for this on day one. Because oh, that's important, right? That if you if you have this TV that's 4K and you have this box that's 4K, you want to have all your other stuff. Um, and so this is uh, this is going to be one where I think we see some demos. Uh, I'm sure there'll be, there's always a, a cringeworthy video game demo. Uh, we'll get that too, but... I mean, we'll know within the next couple of days if it's the 5th or not, because they've got to send invites out. If it's quiet over the next couple of days, then I think the 12th is is much more likely. Yeah. Um, I was waiting for the invitations to go out today. Instead, we got the developer beta 8 of iOS 11. Uh, so I was really surprised by that. We don't always get to beta 8 or, you know, even beta 7. Yeah. So uh, if Apple can... And still no GM, right? Sti- this sti- is not no, labeled as a GM. No, no GM. The GM is going to be officially announced as usual at the event. At the event. And, yeah. you know, developers on that day can, you know, maybe the following day can submit uh, iOS 11 apps uh, to the App Store. So... Definitely looking forward to that because the final week for me means taking screenshots and videos because now yeah. uh, iOS 11 in theory is final. Yeah, I'm I'm super excited about all of this. You know, we, we've been talking about this phone. It feels like about 10 years. <laughs> like I feel like we've talked about this phone forever. And I'm, I'm just super excited about it. The more we learn about it, the more excited I am about it. And 
not everything they introduce will be for me. I don't have a 4K television. I'm not looking to buy a new television, so the Apple TV won't be for me yet, I don't think. But this other stuff, you know, an LTE Apple Watch, I'm very curious how they pull that off and, and what that's like an experience. I'm very curious about the new phone. And uh, I think it's going to be a fun fall. And, you know, it, along with, with Mike and his, you know, year of uh, enthusiasm or whatever he's called it on the show, like, I think the three of us are just, we're excited about seeing this stuff and getting our hands on it next month. I think it's called the year of optimism. Uh, yeah, uh, something. Mike gives names to uh, everything. Everything. Do, do you know Mike has nicknames for objects in his house? Yes. Okay. Uh, I know that his canary is called Buster. Yeah. Is it called it busts Buster the bad guys. or Alfred? Or I think it's Buster. Yeah. I'm almost positive. Okay. He's adorable. He really is. Mm. All right. Uh, we're going to get into some teachy teaches. But first, I want to tell you about our final sponsor. That is Crimson Mesa. Crimson Mesa is excited to announce its first app for the iPad, Shokim Nimai, Ancient Game of the River. It can be found in the iPad App Store by searching for Ancient Game of the River. Shokim Nimai is a fun strategy game for parties or evenings with friends with simple-to-learn rules. All you have to do is swipe on your pieces to move them, and the goal is to get your pieces around the board before your rival does. It's based on a game that was popular in ancient times, but was forgotten for thousands of years. And now it's back. It's on the iPad and costs just $9.99. I know Mike has spent some time with it. He said it was really fun and simple and that uh, there's a lot of tension between the players as opposed to making it all about what's going on on the screen. And that makes it really different to a lot of things on the iOS app store. Crimson Mesa creates premium tablet-focused software and they're driven by one principle that I really respect – design quality experiences that their users will love and enjoy. In addition to Shokim Nimai, Crimson Mesa is hard at work creating revolutionary iPad tools for professionals to help bring that multi-pad lifestyle to more people. To discover why this game was so popular eons ago, buy the Ancient Game of the River on the iPad App Store for only $9.99. You can find out more at GameOfTheRiver.com. Thank you so much to Crimson Mesa for supporting this show and Relay FM. All right, Federico, you are here to talk about something that I will admit to you I didn't know was a thing in iOS 11 uh-huh. until you suggested it, uh, that you talk about it, and that is SMS filtering in iOS 11. So I assume, is this like call filtering is in iOS 10 um, where it detects spam, or what is this, what is yeah. this thing? Uh, so last year, Apple rolled out the um, spam calling extensions uh, that allow developers to identify potential robocallers, you know, those companies awful companies that call you and you know they want to sell you something or maybe it's like or it's not even a person on the other end anyway that that was a new extension point in ios 10 with ios 11 they want to tackle uh, another aspect of this problem of the same problem which is companies that spam you over sms because or mms even because they found your phone number somewhere and they get in touch with you they send you offers they send you links they send you just Annoying messages to catch your attention and, you know, for spam reasons and engagement and whatever. So how do you block SMS? Well, you cannot really block SMS if you don't know the source beforehand. Um, So iOS 10 and even iOS 9, I think, it featured a a built-in unknown and junk section of the Messages app that by default put messages from unknown contacts 
into that view so that you wouldn't be distracted by notifications and that so that those messages wouldn't end up in the main conversation list. But still, that doesn't, you know, uh, there's still some messages that go through that uh, filter. Because, uh, you know, sometimes, I don't know if it ever happens to you, but sometimes I get these messages that don't, they don't actually show a phone number. They show like a name of a store or I, I don't know how that works, but some, somehow my, my iPhone doesn't recognize that as, a, as an unknown contact. And so it goes through the unknown and junk filter and it ends up in my main conversation list. Uh, you know, spammers are really, you know, enterprising people. They always find a way. Um, so with iOS 11, there's this new API. It's called the Identity Lookup API. And it's the foundation for this new extension type, the SMS filtering extension. Um, this allows developers to write apps that don't block SMS and MMS from these companies. Because, again, you cannot block them beforehand, but you can filter them. And by filtering them into the unknown and junk view of the Messages app, uh, you can allow the users to not be distracted by notifications and to go into that section when they want to clean up and remove all of these conversations. Um, the, the filtering uh, extensions, they only work with SMS. They cannot integrate with iMessage and they work locally on your device. They cannot contact your, they cannot integrate with your carrier, for example, or they cannot integrate with the iMessage protocol. They are a simple way to listen, basically, for incoming SMS. And based on a list of keywords or phone numbers that you want to filter, they can hide those messages by default and put them into the unknown and junk view of messages. There's some details of these extensions that we should cover. Um, first, you can only activate one at a time. Unlike content blockers, if you want, you know, in Safari, if you want, you can activate multiple content blockers at once. I don't recommend you do that, uh, but if you want to, it's possible. With the SMS filtering extensions, you can only activate one at a time. Uh, when you go into, when you have some of these apps installed, you go into the settings for messages and you see the unknown I think it's called the filtering section or the unknown and junk section. Anyway, you go in there and you see that you can select one of these filters. You get a message, you get like a permission dialogue that says the extension will be able to, you know, to read your incoming messages, of course, because it needs to actually take a look at the phone number or the uh, keywords included in the body of the message. Uh, and once you enable one, it's running in the background. You don't have to do anything else. So I've been playing with... Um, three or four of these, I think they're going to be an extremely popular category of iOS 11 apps because they remove that tiny frustration of getting SMS from, you know, like my local grocery store now for some reason sends me spam on via SMS because they have my phone number, because they have, you know, I have a loyalty card and they have my details. So a few months ago they decided, you know, let's just start sending Federico some SMS about, you know, vegetables. Uh, discounted on sale today. <laughs> I, I have no idea why they think that's a great idea, but they do it anyway. The way that, at least, you know, based on the betas that I've had so far, most developers are going to offer blacklist and whitelist features. So if you want to make sure that some SMS 
either from a specific phone number or that contain a specific keyword, they go, they are filtered out and they go into the unknown and junk section, you can create a blacklist. Otherwise, if you want to make sure that some SMS, stuff like one-time passwords from your bank or, you know, uh, two-factor authentication codes, if you want to make sure that those SMS go into the main conversation list and that you get notifications from them, you can whitelist them. So you can make sure, you know, these are the good ones and these keywords, they, they are bad messages. Filter them out. Um, I think they're going to be extremely popular. And, you know, uh, considering that Apple has already done uh, spam call extensions and now they're doing SMS filters, I think they're really they're really helping, you know, people get rid of these annoyances on a daily basis. Uh, it will be interesting, I think, to see how developers design these extensions in the sense of I've seen, for example, developers integrate with Core ML and the natural language APIs to automatically detect possible spam keywords. I've also seen some folks try to do like a crowdsourced database of popular spam keywords. So aggregating that data across the extensions user base. So it will be interesting to see if the most developers settle on here's the app, create your own blacklist manually, type in some keywords, type in some phone numbers, or if they will do some type of smart extension that tries to figure out on its own what is potentially spam over SMS. So again, this is probably not a big deal as as a, a spam call extensions last year, if only because I think spam calls are more intrusive and more annoying than SMS. But they're still welcome. So uh, I'm going to keep one enabled. I still got to choose the one that I prefer. But uh, I think it will be you know nice addition to iOS. Yeah, and you know carriers have tried this, just like carriers had robocall stuff. But um, I use um, uh, it's actually trying to find on my phone. Uh, I forget the Nomo something. Nomo Robo. Yeah. Um, it's like two bucks a month or something, and it, it does a really good job. You can add calls to to the blacklist, and they uh, they you know look over them and then add them to their database. So it's crowdsourced a little bit, but this sort of stuff is nice to have because spam, at least at least for me, has gotten way worse on my phone number. Uh, it really got worse when we founded Relay because that my phone number was attached to a bunch of paperwork that I assume is public record, but it, it's it's out of control. So I'm glad that, that they're doing something here, and it seems like they're doing it you know the right way where it's it's on device. It's very Apple like. It seems like in the way that they're going about it. Yeah, uh, the extension itself, it cannot even talk to the network. So if you want to have uh, an associated web server uh, that goes along with your app. So these extensions, as you mentioned, uh, as any other extension on iOS, they are bundled with an app that you download from the App Store. But the extension itself, it cannot talk to the network. It doesn't have network access. Um, And the way that Apple has designed the Identity Lookup API is... uh, iOS acts as a middleman. iOS talks to your server. And if like your server wants to evaluate some keywords that the extension doesn't understand, or if your server has some more information about potential spam keywords, anyway, iOS talks to the network. And then iOS passes that information back to the extension. 
So there's no direct network access between the extension and the, and the server. There's iOS in the middle taking care of that translation between the two. So um, Apple always likes to, you know, to design these APIs uh, with privacy and security in mind. And I mean, I'm no technical expert, but looking through the documentation from what I can understand, it seems that they are following through, you know, with uh, the same with content blockers and uh, spam calling last year. These APIs are always designed to make sure that user information is not, a, you know, uh, given away to developers and given away to extensions. So uh, the Identity Lookup API follows uh, content blockers. For example, they cannot see the URL of the web page that you're visiting at the moment. Uh, and, you know, it, it doesn't surprise me that Apple has designed the API this way. Yeah. You know, it, it, pop up, it pops up every once in a while. I saw it kind of flowing on Twitter the other day of like the phone numbers like the app or messages is really the only thing on your phone that really can like take over the phone. Like if you get a phone call, that UI takes over the whole screen. People are like, well, it's just be a notification. I don't know how I feel about that, but same thing with, with SMS in particular, like these things, these things can just come to you and you know, or something like the weather or with Twitter or Instagram, I'm going to it, but with phone number, it feels like stuff is just always pouring in. And so to to have some smart stuff built up around that to make it a better experience, you know, it's like, yes, like let's leverage what the what iOS can do, what the iPhone can do to make this better for people. And so I'm excited they were adding it. Uh, I can't believe I missed it uh, over the summer, but I'm glad you explained it. Yeah. I, I feel, I feel, I feel teached, you, so to speak. You feel teached. Okay. That, that is great to know. That is great to know. I think that does it for this week. Yeah. I think we're done. Yeah. If you if you want to find show notes this week, uh, point your web browser to relay.fm slash connected slash 157. Uh, while you're there, we should mention that it is still August, and that is uh, Relay FM's uh, birthday month, and, and we're kind of winding down our membership drive. If you're not a member, uh, go check out relay.fm slash membership. You get lots of goodies. You can support this show. You can support all the great shows, so uh, every Relay FM host uh, benefits, but, uh, lots of, lots of goodies. Uh, we're doing member, uh, member only episodes. We have a newsletter. We got a bunch of 5k wallpapers, uh, a lot of fun stuff. So relay.fm slash membership. Uh, if you are a member, thank you so much, uh, for your support. If you want to find us online, uh, Mike isn't here, but if you he were here, he would be on Twitter, uh, at twitter.com slash I Mike, I M Y K E. You can find Federico at maxstories.net and Vatici on Twitter. And you can find me at 512pixels.net and I'm ISMH. And uh, I think uh, I think that's it. So until next time, Federico, say goodbye. Arrivederci. Adios.